The Cell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 710 for January 19th, 2020. Carriers fail when it comes to protecting customers against SIM swap attacks. Google's smart lock comes to iOS, and we may see full 5G support in the iPhone this year after all. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Coppas. Your weekly podcast for the latest news, devices, and software in the mobile phone industry. More information can be found at thecellphonejunkie.com. Well, first in the news this week, an alarming test carried out by Princeton shows that five largest U.S. carriers fail to protect their customers against SIM swap attacks. They were able to persuade the carriers to assign phone numbers to new SIMs without successfully answering any of the standard security questions. Once a phone number has been reassigned to a SIM in the possession of an attacker, they can reset passwords even on accounts protected by two-factor authentication. The Princeton study found that carriers would permit the reassignment even if the attacker had repeatedly given incorrect answers to security questions designed to ensure that they were legitimate account owners. They said, we examined the types of authentication mechanisms in place for such requests at five U.S. prepaid carriers, including AT&T, T-Mobile, TrackPhone, U.S. Mobile, and Verizon Wireless, by signing up for 50 prepaid accounts, 10 with each carrier, and subsequently calling in to request a SIM swap on each account. Our key finding is that at the time of the data collection, all five carriers used insecure authentication challenges that could easily be subverted by attackers. We found that in general, callers only needed to successfully respond to one challenge in order to authenticate, even if they had failed numerous prior challenges. The method used was simple. The caller claimed to have forgotten the answer to the primary security question and then went on to claim that the reason they could couldn't answer questions about things like their date of birth, uh, date or place of birth is that they must have been uh, made a mistake when they set up the account. Customer service representatives then allowed them to authenticate by simply naming the two most recent phone numbers called. Now, as the study notes, it would be pretty simple to persuade someone to call an unknown number simply by leaving voicemails and or sending text messages. The carriers even sometimes accepted incoming calls as authentication, meaning the attacker needed to do nothing more than call the victim's phone from a burner phone. Once the SIM swap was complete, many online services would allow someone to reset the forgotten password by sending a link to reset SMS, and that message would then go on to the attacker, who would then reset the password and gain control of the account. Uh, 17 websites across different industries have implemented authentication policies that would enable an attack enable an attacker uh, to fully compromise the account just with a SIM swap. The study found that all carriers used weak security challenges. And for example, one of the last payments made on the account of which the attacker could subvert, the attacker could purchase a refill card at a retail store, submit a refill on the victim's account, then request a SIM swap using the the known refill as authentication. Uh, The ease of which the SIM swap attacks could be carried out underlines the weakness of text messaging as a form of two-factor authentication. Uh, Short version here, use an authentication application if offered the choice. Right. And of course, that last bit is the key there is using an authentication app because you need to authenticate to the authentication app. And if they don't have the access to your physical device, which they would not in this case, you know, they don't get that code transmitted to them. Another way that we kind of talked about the, a few years ago, Mickey, is that using Google Voice as the number that you use for the SMS is actually probably a wise thing. As long as you don't forward those SMSs from Google Voice to your main mobile number. And in that case, basically, you would need to have your own device, which would 
basically act as an authentication app because the the text message would only come from the Google Voice app or the push notice that comes to your specific device, not your phone number. So even if they SIM swapped you, um, they would not be able to probably gain access to your uh, Google account and uh, you know intercept those two factor authentications to reset other passwords for other things. And you know I you know feel like to, uh, Google has much more security than uh, what they demonstrated here with these attacks. Yeah, we're going to talk in a little bit here about some new security measures that Google is offering with one of the new apps that they have for iOS. But uh, you bring up a very good point, which is if there's any way that you can help to prevent this type of uh, issue from happening, it's to provide a different type of authentication uh, for two-factor uh, to your accounts rather than doing it through your phone number because of this type of issue. And if you don't think it's happening, uh, you're wrong. It is, and it's happening actually pretty regularly. And as this report shows, it's something that can happen fairly easily, especially if you're using uh, some of these common prepaid accounts. And and ultimately, this is going to cause just havoc in your life if you're trying to figure out how to uh, you know, undo some of these issues that uh, could potentially happen to you. So it's something to uh, definitely think about as you're going forward and, and putting these measures into place. And it's not just prepaid, the regular postpaid carriers, uh, you know, the plans and the services, it's about the same thing. It's not really any more protected. Even, uh, you know, I've even read stories where people have uh, locks on their account to avoid any sort of SIM swap. And it has a password, uh, like a specific dedicated password for it that, you know, you can only, uh, you know, they claim you can only have this uh, transfer happen if you know this pass, uh, password on it. And it still happens because the, the reps get convinced uh, via social engineering to make these changes. And of course, you know, social engineering for passwords and, and, you know, corporate theft and, you know, things like that are, it's very common to, you know, social engineer your way past uh, security measures. And this is just uh, one of those ways to do it. You know, it is, um, it, it's scary. It's, uh, it, it's one of those things that's very concerning. And um, it, it just, as Joy points out, it's very, uh, you know, prudent to be looking at other types of services, such as using a phone number on your account that can be authenticated through something that's other than a SIM card that can be transferred over. And Google Voice is a, a great way to do this or some other sort of virtualized phone number service where you're getting the phone number that's coming through either uh, or the, the messages that are coming through either via a push notification and then ultimately you have to have either access to an application or a website in order to get in and authorize uh, what is happening. Uh, there, there can also be an email which... Uh, depending on uh, what sort of uh, you know hack has occurred here, it could be uh, useful uh, or it might not be. Uh, but ultimately, you can also do that where you can get the text messages sent to you via email. Uh, but the point is that there are uh, there are some conveniences that come from a text message that is sent to you because especially if you're logging in on a phone and that message is coming to the phone itself, it's all right there and it's very easy to copy and paste over. Apple has made it even easier with their uh, their push for. Uh, making the messages that come through available uh, in Mojave or later uh, with uh, uh, authentication codes and just providing them if you use Safari into uh, one of the, uh, you know, I'll just say options that you can paste into the uh, 
to the field when you get a, a, a message that comes through when you're trying to authenticate. Uh, but ultimately, it is uh, potentially more, again, more prudent uh, to do something that's a little bit more secure so that you're not faced with these sorts of issues if your your account gets uh, hacked and or uh, socially engineered, as Joy points out, because this can, uh, again, cause all sorts of issues. Well, moving on this week to some device news. Apple analyst Ming-Chu Ku has said this week that this year's iPhones will support true 5G, a.k.a. millimeter wave 5G, despite a report last week that said otherwise. The aforementioned report from analysts at Susquehanna claimed that this year's iPhones would only support sub-6 gigahertz 5G. However, Ku says that this isn't the case. While his previous note said that only uh, th- that all four of this year's phones would support 5G without specifying a type, his latest supply chain report specifically says that they'll support both bands. Uh, he said, we believe that Apple will release new iPhones that will support millimeter wave and sub-6 gigahertz iPhones at the same time in the second half of 2020. Because 5G iPhones are divided into sub-6 gigahertz and sub-6 gigahertz plus millimeter wave models, the complexity of new product development is higher, which is also beneficial uh, to uh, to certain groups. Uh, accordingly to the latest report, the development of sub-6 gigahertz plus millimeter wave iPhones is progressing on schedule and is expected to ship at the end of 2020 or potentially early uh, fourth quarter uh, of 2020. Uh, the combination of the new look of the 5G and 5G is expected to give a significant boost to iPhone sales this year, with supply chain reports suggesting that Apple is gearing up for a 10% increase, with one report suggesting that Apple may top 100 million device sales this year's uh, with this year's models by the end of the year. Manufacturers supporting the latest 5G standards are only half the story, though. It also needs to be available from the carriers. Although early rollouts of millimeter wave 5G are underway, the ex- it is extremely limited, uh, closer to Wi-Fi than LTE, meaning that it is mostly only available in specific high-density locations like rail stations, sports stadiums, or tourist attractions. But again, a complete uh, 180 from the news that we got last week, uh, or at least talked about last week, which said that we were talking about only sub-6 gigahertz 5G devices. We talked at that time about the, the potential for a relative lack of speed uh, with the devices that were going to be coming out. And um, subsequently, I think if uh, if these two line up here, I think we could see some some pretty interesting things. Um, obviously, having a both support for both bands would be nice uh, and uh, maybe not necessarily realistic in a real world scenario where you've got devices that are able to be used, uh, taking advantage of the millimeter wave spectrum in more than just, you know, some very specified places. But at the very least, you've got something that's available and hopefully being the customer is able to take advantage of moving forward. Yeah, of course, it's the chicken and the egg problem. You, you, you need a network to have devices built and you need devices built to have a network. So it's really difficult to say, you know, is even um, millimeter wave going to be even deployed by carriers much more than it is right now. I mean, are they going to add it to a few stadiums and that's going to be it? Uh, We just don't know really uh, what they're planning as far as, you know, mass rollout and in kind of the coverage. I mean, they've talked about cities, but not really like exactly what they're planning on doing and and how much they're going to start building out millimeter wave uh, kind of beyond these early test markets. We just don't know yet. But I guess the point is that if you are somebody who's looking to buy an iPhone and you're a Verizon customer, as an example, and you know that there is millimeter wave that's been built out in certain areas and those areas are near you and you can take advantage of those, you'd want to be able to take advantage of it and ultimately have the availability of it 
uh, in your area. But um, I think the uh, you know the usefulness of the 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 I'll say the over six gigahertz spectrum is still to be determined. And uh, for most people, it's not going to be something that they're going to be using on a regular basis. It's going to be in specific areas. To your point, your point, studio or stadiums that is, uh, and other areas where you've got high densities of people. Uh, but it's even more than that. It's got to be more than just the I'll say proof of concept that's been put out there today. It's got to be something that is built in a way that makes sense uh, for usage by the masses, not just by someone who's standing you know, within that area. And so it's, uh, it's going to take some time for that kind of stuff to roll out. Um, I, I'm still very skeptical of it, um, you know, more than pretty much any other spectrum that's been used in the history of cellular, because it does not seem to make any sense when it comes to how this stuff is going to be used by people in the real world. It does make sense if you think about a, um, a spectrum that's used for long distances, or not, not long, but just point-to-point distances where maybe you've got an antenna and then you've got uh, you know, an antenna that's the, the supply antenna, and then you've got receiving antennas on houses or offices or something like that, where it's an antenna that's outside and it's providing coverage to the inside. Uh, but when you're talking about handheld devices, and, uh, you know, we talked about it last week, there are specific cases that are now being developed to promote uh, the propagation of the signal into devices that can take advantage of this service. Um, that tells you something. That's just how difficult this stuff is to propagate through anything that's other than just the, the thinnest materials and the most porous of materials that are out there. Yeah, like it doesn't go through your, through your hand, so you actually can't hold the phone. I mean, we need to go back to the, the antennas of the analog days where you have to, you know, extend the antenna past your head in order for these things to really work properly is what they really should be doing. Yeah, and of course, this is all very, you know, unrealistic when it comes to, you know, the devices that we use today, the designs and uh, and whatnot. I mean, that that's stuff that's just not going to happen. You know, in going back six, nine months when we talked about this with 5G and, uh, you know, the, the issues or lack thereof of uh, how this stuff is going to propagate through uh, the, you know, let's say the, 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 the materials uh, that are made up of the, the biologic materials of our bodies. Um, and uh, it just, it's, it's not an issue uh, when it comes to, you know, going through and, and causing issues uh, below the, the epidermis. And these are things that are actually real issues when it comes to you're holding a phone and that phone itself uh, is trying to get signal in and out of it. And uh, if your your body is blocking it, it's just, frankly, it's just not going to work. So um, going back to it, though, with this, the, the news here of the iPhone, um, it, it's still something that I think needs to be in there, uh, at least for the, the current round until we decide whether or not this stuff is going to be used at all um, and, uh, you know, create the, the chipsets that can take advantage of it and whether or not the the carriers decide to, you know, roll out more of it is is really not the problem of Apple. Apple is really, I think, just, uh, you know, they are their whole charge here is just put devices that are out there that take advantage of the spectrum, have the the bands that are involved in uh, having the, in, or excuse me, the chipsets that have the bands that can take advantage of it with the appropriate antennas. And ultimately, it'll be up to the carriers to decide if they want to use it further. Right. And of course, the carriers probably, you know, uh, you know, highly encourage Apple to get these, you know, bands in as early as possible. Uh, so they have a easier time selling their new 5G plans. And and those plans, you know, in to your point, are going to be additional uh, revenue generators for them. It's, you know, some carriers are not charging more, others are. And ultimately, the, you know, the the revenue that they can get off of them may be, you know, five, ten dollars more per month. And that is something more than they're getting today. And if you decide to buy one of these new devices, you're going to have to pay for it to take advantage of it. And if it's not the actual revenue they're looking for, it's for the 
basically freeing up their 4G spectrum for the 5G implementation. So basically, you know, it's it, it's something that gives it, it's buying them time. The earlier more devices have the 5G support, the earlier that they can remove the LTE support from their devices, which then they can convert all of their existing spectrum over to 5G, which is a more efficient uh, uh, protocol to use on the spectrum that they already own. But the, you know, the, I'll say the the 4G side is, uh, I mean, we are a decade off from this stuff being sunsetted. Yep. I mean, you think about like where we are with 3G now. I mean, this is this is stuff that was introduced back in the uh, mid 2000s, you know, 2005 to 2010 time frame, and it's still out there. There's very few times I'm sure that you find yourself falling back on 3G, but it still does happen, especially if you come out of a basement or somewhere that doesn't have service. Um, oftentimes, the first service that you're going to catch on to is 3G versus 4G. It's going to be the same thing as we move on from, uh, you know, from LTE and 4G uh, onto uh, 5G, and it's just it's going to take some time for that to happen. Um, I, I don't disagree with you, but I think about the, you know, the the time in I guess it was maybe 2012, 20 maybe right 2013 into early 2014, uh, when Verizon, as an example, had LTE and uh, ultimately had uh, started to figure out that they were going to have some spectrum crunch with the 700 megahertz deployments and bought up some spectrum in the 1700 megahertz spectrum, called it XLTE. And uh, that spectrum was uh, much more suited for purposes of, uh, you know, say, urban settings and trying to provide densification coverage. And it, this is a similar thing where they've got fi- the the carriers have to figure out how to deploy 5G, where you've got areas that need, you know, more, uh, you know, turnover of that spectrum. And so that's where the 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 above six gigahertz stuff comes in uh, versus the sub six gigahertz. But um, still, it's it it seems like we're still talking about stuff that is going to be a little bit more difficult to to figure out because of how these devices are being used in a mobile setting versus you, you don't have these fixed points where you can just do kind of point to point type of stuff. But um, it's it's a uh, again, a, a very hairy issue. Uh, it's something that's going to take a lot of time to work through and uh, don't expect 5G to come online um, any faster. In fact, it might not be even, you know, half as fast as what uh, 4G did when LTE came out just a decade ago. Moving on, uh, Android or on the Android side, Samsung this week has revealed the Galaxy X Cover Pro. This is a new Android 10 phone optimized for a variety of industries, including retail, healthcare, logistics, and manufacturing. It's just slightly larger than the Galaxy S10 Plus, but with a ruggedized body uh, with uh, military rated for drops of 1.5 meters and rated IP68 for dust and water. Its flat screen measures 6.2 inches, sports full HD plus resolution, and works with gloves and wet fingers. It has a 4,050 milliamp hour removable battery with support for 15 watt fast charging and charging docks with pogo pins. It also has a 25 megapixel main camera, 13 megapixel front camera, NFC, fingerprint reader on the side, and a two, pro- two programmable shortcut buttons. One of the buttons can be used for the push-to-talk or walkie-talkie feature of motor, uh, Microsoft Teams. Uh, it's also powered by the Samsung Exynos chip paired with a 4 gigahertz, or excuse me, gigabytes of RAM, 64 gigabytes of storage with built-in support for memory cards of up to 512 gigabytes. It'll work with Verizon's network in the U.S. and available in the first half of 2020 for $500. 
So last week you had a couple of phones that also can work with wet fingers. And I don't know if you ever tried to use your you know, iPhone, if you, even if you have a damp finger, it just doesn't work at all. It, 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 you're lucky if it doesn't you know, jump around and do crazy things, but it's so frustrating if your uh, screen or your fingers are wet when you do that. So I'm wondering, since it works with gloves, it can't be a capacitive touchscreen, basically, if water and gloves are involved. So it must be a combo capacitive and resistive touchscreen uh, like the old school days one, I'm assuming, or some other method that they're using uh, for touch uh, detection. Yeah, you, you bring up a, a good point. And, you know, there are uh, there are things that have been done, uh, obviously, with uh, not with the screen and the screen technologies themselves, but with other things things like gloves that have come out where they are attaching uh you know different types of um the you know the the, the i'll say sensors to, not sensors but uh pieces of material to the gloves that are connecting to a person's uh hands and the electro uh signals that are electric signals that are coming from the hands that allow the gloves to work through to the screens this is completely different this is saying you know you don't you can don't have to worry about disrupting the signal. And to your point, uh, some sort of resistive uh, technology that's being introduced to allow for this technology to work. But uh, ultimately, I think there's a, um, you know, there, there's something to this when it comes to uh, certain industries and how they are using their devices. Um, I work in, uh, you know, with certain people that are trying to figure out how to you know, use devices when they're out in a field, as an example, and ultimately, you know, don't have the most perfect conditions, whether it's, you know, weather and, uh, you know, they've got the tough cases if you, you know, like the zags of the world and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, they're still trying to like dry the screens off if they're out working in the rain uh, or, you know, using gloves and they've got to have specific gloves, which doesn't necessarily work depending on the type of work that they're doing. And so it's a, it's a, a you know, there are uh, the, these technologies that are, I'll say, relatively sensitive to uh, the things that we're putting towards them when it comes to anything other than a just a, a you know, a, a lab environment where you've got dry conditions with uh, clean fingers and you're going to somebody who's trying to use a device for real work and uh, it doesn't necessarily work all that well. So um, it, it is it's fascinating stuff here. It sounds like a pretty good device, relatively good price here. And uh, if it works, it's going to be a, a great thing here with this Galaxy X Pro, X Cover Pro, that is, uh, for a certain uh, slice of the workforce. Well, finally this week, uh, some iOS software news. Last year, Google announcing that all Android 7 Plus devices could be used for two-factor authentication when signing into Gmail, Drive, or other first-party services. Most modern iPhones can be used uh, can now be used as a built-in phone security key for Google applications. Two-factor authentication uh, through code sent via SMS is widely available today. However, it's regarded as being insecure, as we talked about earlier, and safer alternatives alternatives like physical security keys that you can plug into your phone or computer are recommended. A new solution is using your phone's hardware to uh, verify that you're the one that's logging in. A built-in phone security key offers uh, differs from a Google prompt, though both essentially share the same UI. The latter push-based approach can be found in the Google search application and Gmail. Essentially, your phone gets a push notification, you open the app on your phone, and it authenticates the login. This week's announcement is a bit different, similar to the physical USB-C or Lightning key, in terms of being resistant to phishing attempts when verifying who you are. Your phone security key 
needs to be, be physically near or I within Bluetooth range the device that wants to log in. The login prompt is not just being sent over the internet connection. Uh, with the phone, with an update to the Google Smart Lock application in iOS this week, Google says, quote, you can now set up your phone's built-in security key. The company is leveraging the secure enclave found in Apple's A-series chips, storing Touch ID, Face ID, and other cryptographic data. Anytime users enter a, a Google account username and password, they'll be prompted to open Smart Lock on their nearby iPhone to confirm the sign-in. There's also an option to cancel with uh, no, it's not me. This option works with signing into uh, Google with Chrome while Bluetooth on both the desktop computer and phone needing to be enabled in order for devices to locally communicate and confirm the request and verification. After installing the update, you're prompted to select the account to set up your phone's built-in security key. Smart Lock is previously, has previously just been used for allowing Bluetooth security keys as well as generating one-time security codes. Google also refreshed the app's design to make it easier to use with version 1.6. So uh, obviously, this is a um, you know an, an interesting uh, you know thing that they're doing here, where they're basically saying, all right, you're going to have an app on the phone. That app on the phone is going to communicate with your phone's secure enclave and ultimately uh, be the one that authenticates through the Bluetooth connection. That connection has to happen with the Bluetooth connection of another device. And um, I I can see this being something that uh, hopefully is useful in the future. Um, You know, I was uh, faced with a a scenario this week where um, my wife was trying to log in to uh, set up Venmo on her phone. She had never set up Venmo before and was trying to then tie in in one of our bank accounts to Venmo so that she could pay somebody. And ultimately, Venmo was giving her trouble because of two-factor authentication, and it doesn't uh, it couldn't authenticate through two-factor authentication uh, to allow her to pay, to pay something through uh, our bank account. And I thought, well, on one hand, that's great because it's doing what it's supposed to, and it's not letting someone just plug in your information, even if they knew your account name, you know, username and password, and uh, and and synchronize through, uh, or or say authenticate through, and then pay bills. You have to have the two factor authentication, and on the other hand, annoying because you can set it up. Uh, but how do we, you know? what's the best way that we can do this moving forward? Because you've got everything from financial institutions and places where you would have some significant issues if they could be spoofed and you could get in uh, or hacked and they could get in and uh, someone could do something with your financial information. Uh, you've got things like your your email accounts and other uh, logins that have sensitive information, whether it's a, a cloud-based you know, a storage uh, solution or something else. Uh, and then there's also those other accounts that you just want to log into but ultimately want to keep them you know, secure and and maybe you're using similar passwords, hopefully not the same passwords, but similar passwords across multiple sites. And, um, you know, so all of these things are going to create uh, different ways that you're going to want to authenticate. And uh, there's uh, th- there's no real good way to do this today. There's these, you know, I'll say different solutions that are out there that work for certain places, whether it's an authentication through a particular, uh, you know, company that's got different things like Microsoft has an uh, authentication application. Uh, obviously, Google has one now. Um, but there's, you know, other than the universal uh, notion of a uh, an SMS authentication, which we've talked about is less than secure, uh, unless you're doing that through a virtualized number which the vast majority of people that are out there are not doing, there's not really anything out there that's really good for people to use. 
Not really, because, you know, we've got these RSA, RSA keys that we've had for many, many years where you can use those to kind of log in because they've got a, you know, encrypted key that's seeded and it changes every few seconds. So the server side knows kind of what your security should be or the security code should be at that time. Uh, but we don't have much, you know, Apple right now, they've got the two factor authentication, um, not text message typically, uh, but it can uh, but you also get those prompts on your Apple devices saying, you know, this device is, uh, you know, a new device is trying to sign in. Is this allowed? You know, you hit allow or decline on that, which is great to have that. So that's also a different. But yes, every single service has a different form um, if it's not just to factor via SMS. So like this Google Authenticator app. But, you know, with Google, such a huge thing and you can use your Google credentials to log into so many different services. This is, you know, something if you have you know either very sensitive information or just want to make sure you keep your google account secure uh using an app like this for verifying is you know highly recommended because it's definitely a, a much more secure way uh to uh, keep your account safe well I, I think first and foremost anything more than just a simple username and password is a good thing to do uh, that's number one. Number two, if there are options other than SMS authentication that you can use, uh, those are, are are better than just SMS. But if that's all you have that you can go off of, that's that's better than nothing. And if you are someone that is savvy enough to to figure out um, how to use a virtualized phone number. Uh, that can take advantage of doing something uh, like that where you are not getting an actual SMS text message that could be ultimately pulled away from the phone that you have and sent to another device based on just a SIM card uh, tack and swap. Uh, that's the, I'll say, the best type of option that's out there other than getting the message that is sent to a third-party application or service uh, that ultimately you've got separate credentials in that uh, someone would need to know. Uh, but you know those, those types of things are kind of like the, the increasing hierarchy of security that you can find. Uh, you know, and it, the, I'd say the pinnacle is probably a physical piece of hardware that is separated from and not connected to anything that is providing a piece uh, of information uh, to you, meaning probably some sort of security number or something that you're using the RFA card and ultimately using that to then qualify and then use as a credential to get into that account. Right. But even with all of this, it still does not prevent employees of these companies from being social engineered to giving up access to your account because uh, representatives almost always have the ability to, you know, bypass any of the security stuff that's, you know, on these accounts. So it's always a risk regardless of what is going on. So it's never going to be ultimately purely secure uh, because of the way just, you know, these accounts and companies are designed. And on, I guess that's that's kind of a good way to end this conversation, which is if you have sensitive information and you're trying to keep it as secure as possible, the best way to keep it that way is to not store it on any any service that's out there that is available and accessible by the general public. Keep it secure on your own internal uh, systems or processes that ultimately are not available and accessible through third-party services. And sometimes that seems uh, like completely ridiculous, but if you're talking about a, a very sensitive piece of information, and let's say it's a document as an example, store it on a local hard drive. If you are concerned about backups, keep it on a backup uh, that is something that is not synchronized out to the internet 
and ultimately you are going to find yourself uh, with a reasonable amount of security and redundancy if you can keep it uh, off of the internet because then ultimately you're going to know that no one other than you has that piece of information. Well, no questions or comments this week, uh, but if you have anything for us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us email to questions at thecellphonejunkie.com or give us a call 650-999-0524 and we'll get whatever you have to say on a future show. Joey, thank you very much as always for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. For more information about the stories you've just heard, visit us at thecellphonejunkie.com.